Hello there, welcome back. Good to have you with us. Um, I know the question was asked uh, what at, to the adults, what Netflix series are you watching? But chances are there's some of you adults that are reading books as well. You can let us know what books you're reading or maybe what books you're reading that have been turned into a Netflix series or whatever. Um, speaking of books, uh, we are uh, this week in our final week on the book of Acts, which is just the first few chapters of Acts, really. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll finish up our series this week, but then we will come back to Acts um, again next year and we'll pick it up from chapter 8 and 9, which is basically where you see Saul get converted um, to the Apostle Paul and then um, we see his missionary journeys throughout the rest of the book of Acts and then he goes and he writes the rest of the New Testament. Um, Saul actually does make a bit of an appearance in the chapters that we're looking at here tonight, but at this point he's still unconverted, he's on the wrong side of God, um, and it's, it's very telling. So here we are in chapter 6 and chapter 7 this week, and what we're looking at is the story of the first ever Christian martyr. A martyr is someone who, is, who willingly goes to their death for a cause, and, and, and a Christian martyr is someone who's willing to go to their death for the name of Jesus and the cause of the gospel. And here we catch the story of Stephen, the first ever Christian martyr. Now I say first because after Stephen, many followed. In fact, over the months and years from Stephen all the way up through to present day, many Christian brothers and sisters have been willing to go to their deaths to stand for Jesus and share the gospel. Um, I remember as a young man picking up the book, um, Fox's Book of Martyrs. I'm not sure if you've read that, but I remember reading the, the stories of my brothers and sisters who have gone before me and, and stood for Christ and being quite impacted by that. And it raised a whole bunch of questions for me, particularly as to whether I would be willing to to actually stand for Christ in that way. Have you read the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs? Or have you gone to the website, Voice of the Martyrs, which is something that features um, Christians today in 2020 around the world who are currently being persecuted um, and, being, and being killed um, as they stand for Christ? Um, if you're unaware of what's happened in the past and what's still happening today, um, it's a helpful thing to be aware of it. Um, if you're a Christian who lacks a bit of confidence and you lack a bit of courage and maybe you're lacking a bit of direction, it's going to be helpful for you to see what your brothers and sisters have been through in the past and what some of them are going through right now today. Um, so dig in, pick up a book or go to that website and, and, and tune in now as we look at the story of Stephen the martyr, and see what it does for your heart to give you courage. See what kind of questions it raises for you. So let's dig in. Um, chapter 6, we pick it up here, and as we, what we've been seeing is the, the early church basically exploding into life with hundreds and thousands of people becoming Christians. In fact, the church is growing so rapidly um, that there's a need for more and more men to step up into leadership. Um, and that's, that's the case here. There's, um, they're looking to step up um, seven new men into leadership positions in the church. And this is actually always the case in the church, that as things grow and develop, men and women need to step up into appropriate positions of leadership. And here's where we get introduced to Stephen. He's one of the seven men that's chosen to grow up, step up, and actually lead 
in the church. Um, we get told some. Um, we, we get told a bit about Stephen. Um, look, look at verse five in chapter six. You basically find out that he's full of it. Um, all the good stuff that is. Um, verse five. Um, look, this this proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So he's full of faith, he's full of the Holy Spirit. Um, you get down to verse 8 and you find out that he's full of grace and he's full of wisdom. You go on and you find out that he's full of the power of the Lord and can do incredible miracles. Um, he's basically been equipped for um, a pretty unique way of serving the Lord in this moment as he performs wondrous signs and as he stands up and preaches and speaks about Jesus in a particularly powerful way. And this is how he gets himself into trouble. He's standing up um, among the religious leaders of the time and debating with them and speaking about Jesus and the scriptures in such a way that no one can stand against him. You see there in verse 10, um, but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him. So Stephen is quite a remarkable man or the Lord's using him in quite a remarkable way um, and it's causing quite a stir and he gets himself into trouble for this reason. Um, the religious leaders at the time are used to holding the power and being respected by the people. And now there's this movement happening, the movement of Jesus, and the leaders of that movement are actually the ones who are now speaking with more authority than the religious leaders. And so they're jealous and they're humiliated because they're being out-argued quite easily by these, by these apostles and these leaders like Stephen. Um, that's what happens here for Stephen. He's, he's actually um, speaking about Jesus in a really powerful way. Um, and so what the religious leaders decide to do is to try to shut him down, um, like they continue to do with this movement. And what they do is they launch a smear campaign against Stephen. Um, ultimately, it backfires completely. And all persecution against the church right through history typically backfires as it does here. The, the, the actual outcome of, trying to, of getting rid of Stephen and trying to persecute all the Christians in this moment only leads to the word of God spreading um, more across the countryside. Um, because as we know, you, if you try and stand against God and the movement of God, it never works because God cannot be stopped. And this is the movement of God. Um, through his son, by the spirit in these early followers and it's continued through to today and no smear campaign against leaders or anything is ever going to stop it. Look at verse 11, which is where you see the false accusations that they begin to level against Stephen. Verse 11, they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Um, so, they, they create these um, false accusations um, that Stephen is being blasphemous against Moses and against God, which is basically to, to criticise and say that Moses and God aren't the very things that they claim to be. Um, it's to speak against the law and the temple um, and, and to say God is not who he claims to be in the Bible. That's what they're saying that Stephen is doing. Um, but they're false witnesses. But it, it is interesting. This reminds me of what Jesus copped as well. When he was dragged into court as well, there were false witnesses that stood and sp spoke things that were just not true. One of the key things that you actually, little little detail here that you can pick up on, that Stephen is actually not blaspheming against Moses and the law, um, is this little detail there in verse 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
which is an interesting little detail. That likely means that in some sense, his face was shining or glowing a little. Now, if, if, you, know your, if you know your Old Testament, that, that'll probably remind you of someone in a particular circumstance. You see, when Moses went up on the mountain and spent time with the Lord, he came back down after being in the presence of God and his face was shining and glowing. And now here's Stephen, you know, with the same type of appearance, likely, which tells you that he's just like Moses. It's just a little detail that, that actually shows he's not blaspheming Moses. He's actually in the line of Moses and he's actually been in the presence of God He's representing God well. There's a little thing to note on your way through. Now, how does Stephen ultimately respond to these false accusations that are being leveled at him, that he's blaspheming the law and that he's blaspheming God? Well, Stephen's response actually goes for a couple of chapters. It's a speech that's a long speech that's recorded for us here. So I'm going to give you the summary of of, of his response. And it simply goes like this. They're saying to him that he's a blasphemer. His response is, the summary, I think you can just say is this. He says, I'm not the one blaspheming here. It's you lot. And I think that's a summary of what Stephen says. It takes him about, you know, his speech here takes up about 50 verses. You know, it's two full pages in our Bible. It's like one of the longest kind of defences of Christianity that you see in the New Testament. Um, why is it so long here in the book of Acts? Um, well, all of the apostles' speeches and, and sermons would have gone, gone long, but this one's recorded in detail. I, I do wonder whether Luke, who wrote Acts, actually had a, had a good relationship with Stephen and liked Stephen, so really wanted to feature all of what Stephen said. But on top of that, really, it, it, it's got to serve for more than that as it's arranged here. Um, I think, number one, it's long because Stephen's actually wanting to give somewhat of a self-defense. He's wanting to put forward, look, you're accusing me of things like rejecting Moses and the law, but I want you to know, I, I know our ancestors. This is my belief, you know, in the, in the Old Testament. I, I follow the law of Moses and I know my stuff. So it's a bit of a self-defense, but really the length and the recounting, the retelling of Israel's history that Stephen dives into here is to drill home the point. That's what he's trying to do. He arranges the telling of the history of Israel in such a way to hammer home his point. Israel's history tends to repeat itself over and over again through time. And this is what Stephen does. He actually tells the repeating history over and over again. And here's here's how it could be described. Every time God comes to act and speak through a messenger or through a deliverer, as he comes to his people, every time he comes, God's people typically reject him and reject the messenger and sometimes even beat up and kill the deliverer that God sends. That's the cycle you just see over and over again through history. God comes to speak and his people reject the messenger and reject God and his word in doing that. Stephen's point is really to say, when you look back at history, can you see that you're doing this all over again? Here we are again. Um, here you are again as God's people, rejecting 
what God does as he comes. And, and to take you right to the end of the speech, look at, look at verse 51. Um, Stephen basically, look what he says. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So Peter take, sorry, Stephen takes them through this long repeating of the history of Israel where they keep rejecting God and gets to the end and goes, you're doing the same thing. You're doing what our ancestors have done. You're making the tragic mistake of actually rejecting God as he comes and sends the deliverer again. You're doing it here in this moment. And just to kind of catch the sense and kind of feel the, the length and the detail of what Stephen does here. Let's just look at some of the details and some of the key characters that Stephen mentions here. He starts, as you would, with Abraham, which is the beginning of the nation of Israel. You know, and you might remember that God actually makes a promise to Abraham, through you there's going to be descendants that are actually going to become my people and, and there's going to be so many you're not going to be able to count them. And God makes the promise to Abraham um, that through his descendants there's going to be salvation that comes to the whole earth. Now, when God comes and makes that promise, do you, do you remember what Abraham's wife, Sarah, does when God announces you know, his word and what he, what he says he's going to do? Um, that Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child in their old age? Sarah laughs. Do you remember that? Sarah laughs, and which effectively is to mock God's revelation. It's actually... It's, it's, it's to actually kind of reject God's plan of salvation as being silly. And, and there's the pattern beginning with Israel's history. It, it moves on and you've got Abraham, you've got Isaac, you've got Jacob, and then Jacob has 12 sons. One of the sons, Joseph, is the one who, I mean, they're all going to be the 12 tribes of Israel, but God's going to work particularly through Joseph. But you pick up in verse 9 the way Joseph is treated um, by God's people. Verse 9 of chapter 7, um, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave to Egypt. So there's, there's God's people rejecting, um, rejecting Joseph and in doing so rejecting what God plans to do to deliver his people. You move from Joseph down through to Moses and Moses gets the most amount of time here in Stephen's speech. Pick it up there in verse 35. Um, you know, as, as Moses is the chosen deliverer of God, you know, God's word to deliver his people, look at how they treat Moses. Verse 35, this is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? That's what God's people said to Moses, God's chosen ruler and judge. Who made you ruler and judge? Well, God did. So as they question and as they reject Moses, they're rejecting God and his work. Look at verse 39. Um, but our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him in their, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Can you see the pattern? Every time God comes to speak and send a deliverer and a messenger, God's people reject the messenger and reject God. You get to verse 52 and Stephen basically just tries to again summarize the way that God's people have rejected every prophet that the Lord has sent. Verse 52, was there ever a prophet our ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. There's a summary of the way the ancestors rejected prophet after prophet and even the one who's predicted the coming of the righteous one, which is likely a reference to the kind of 
first New Testament prophet, John the Baptist, who predicted and actually introduced the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, and they killed him too. Um, he was beheaded. But there's the pattern over and over. Stephen just kind of digs in and, 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 and brings them into the history of how the ancestors have continually rejected God, which is to blaspheme God. And he gets to this final moment. And with the mentioning of the righteous one, Jesus, look what he goes on to say. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You're the ones who murdered Jesus. And he's the righteous one. It's just, he just kind of brings it all home and said, this is what you're doing. You, 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 you guys are the ones who have actually now murdered and rejected the ultimate one, the true prophet, the righteous one, the ultimate deliverer, the Messiah, Jesus. You killed Jesus, Stephen says to them. And look at verse one, verse 51. Just read that again with me. He says to them, you stiff-necked people. And when he uses that language, that's kind of harking back particularly to Exodus chapter 32 um, where God's people are gathered at Sinai and really they're called stiff-necked people there because they can't wait for God and Moses and instead they make a golden calf and commit idolatry um, and, and they're proud in their idolatry. So as Stephen uses this language here, he's saying, you guys are proud Idol worshippers, that's who you are. It's pretty heavy what Stephen's saying to them. He says, your hearts and your ears are still uncircumcised. Um, and they would have prided themselves in being the circumcised, you know, being children of Abraham. And here Stephen is saying, no, no, you guys are outside the promise of the covenant. You are not Abraham's children. It's pretty heavy what he's saying. And you come down to verse 53. Um, you, you who have received the law that was given through the angels that's and Moses, have not obeyed it, which is just to say to them, you're not obeying Moses, you're blaspheming him. You're not Abraham's children. You're just a bunch of proud idol worshippers and you're rejecting God here in this moment. It's pretty strong coming from Stephen, isn't it? And, and it's somewhat of even a warning in this moment. Stephen's concerned for them because, because they're, they're rejecting him and the message of Jesus. And so it's a warning and it's, and it's a sense, it's, it's like an implicit call to repent. It's actually the kind of speech that the apostles often did among the people and it often ended up in people repenting and being converted and it happened in the temple courts, it happened in homes, it happened continually but not in this moment. Uh, the response of the religious leaders, there's no belief. There's just fury and it escalates really quickly. I mean, Stephen, have a, have a look at what happens. Um, Verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth. They're just so angry. They're grinding their teeth at him. But look what Stephen does. He says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand side. So Stephen in this moment gets a revelation or a vision of heaven. It's like he can see straight into the reality of, of the universe, you know, with, with God in the throne room. And he looks and he says, and look what he says there in verse 56. He says to everyone, he says, look, I see heaven open and the son of man, that's Jesus, standing at the right hand side of God, which is to say to the whole crowd, God, look, look into heaven. Can, can you see God and can you see this Jesus that you've rejected and killed? Can you see that he is the Messiah and he's alive 
and he's been raised and ascended and he's ruling and he's reigning. He is the righteous one. He is the Lord. He is the Savior. And so Stephen's saying, well, can you see who Jesus is? And he does this as they're angry at him. Look at verse 57. They cover their ears. They just can't even hear it. It's infuriating to them. And basically violence erupts. They start yelling. They drag him out of there. They rush at him. They drag him out of there, outside the city, and they begin to stone him. So it just all bubbles up and it all overflows into violence. Um, last week, we kind of saw how there was that old wise man, Gamaliel, there who kind of calmed everyone down. He doesn't seem to be present, or if he is, he hasn't had a chance to calm them down. It just erupts into a riot. And Stephen is dragged out and he's stoned to death. Stoning was a particularly horrific mob execution. It was, it was the kind of, you know, a way of putting people to death that actually allowed um, for maximum participation. Anyone who wanted to get involved could be involved. And it allowed for anyone who was feeling anger and fury to actually be able to unleash it physically by removing their coats, grabbing a rock, throwing it hard and aiming well and repeating that. It was horrific. It was aimed to just bruise the flesh, break the bones, crack the skull and kill someone in a very public and humiliating and devastating way. Stephen bravely and calmly goes to his death. There's no blubbering or pleading and he holds fast to his belief even in those final moments. He prays out loud. Have a look at what he says. Verse 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. In the final moments, Stephen chooses to pray and he prays a very similar prayer to Jesus, what Jesus prayed when he was being executed. Lord, receive my spirit. He's looking forward to going home. He's, he's, the thing that matters most is to be received by the God of heaven. And he prays for those who are currently executing him. Do not hold this sin against them. He's concerned for them and their eternity. And then he falls asleep. He's taken miraculously, peacefully. But it's heavy. It's heavy. Here's Stephen, the first Christian martyr. How do you feel? going through that account. What questions are you left with? Maybe you find yourself thinking, like I do, um, would I do the same? How would I go in that moment? And if that's the case, then the question we need to ask is, why did Stephen do this? Why did he speak so boldly? Why was he prepared to go to his death? And why have many, many Christian brothers and sisters been willing martyrs for Jesus through history? Well, 
I reckon there's one simple way to answer that question. Um, And it's just to ask, what was going on for Stephen in his head and in his heart? Can we see what was happening for him beneath the surface that actually fueled this kind of living? The one key thing that keeps getting repeated is this, and that is that he is filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that's a very key thing here. For Stephen to be filled with the Holy Spirit meant he was empowered to actually um, live and be bold and courageous and speak and hold his belief in this final moment. What does it mean for you and I to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, we, we kind of talked about this a few weeks ago. So just catch this language of being filled with the Holy Spirit and make sure you understand it well. Um, to be filled with the Spirit doesn't mean you didn't have the Spirit beforehand. You receive the Spirit in full the moment you come to put your trust in Jesus and receive salvation. You receive the Holy Spirit in full. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it means to have, have an increase of the control of the Holy Spirit happening in you. It, it means to have the Holy Spirit that already resides in you to well up in you and actually influence you more and equip you to actually be able to honour Jesus and serve Jesus in the moment that you're in. So I say it's a prayer that we ought to be praying for ourselves regularly and for other Christians. Lord, would you fill us with your Spirit? Which is effectively to be praying the prayer, Lord, with the Spirit that is already in us, your Spirit, would would you enable you, it, to well up in us and equip us to live lives that honour you and serve you? Do you pray that for yourself? Lord, fill me with your spirit. Because that's a very key prayer. As Stephen is filled with the spirit, the key effect of being filled with the spirit for him, I think, is this, that he can see clearly. It's like he can see with crystal clear clarity two key things. He can see, number one, how glorious Jesus is. And number two, how serious it is to actually reject Jesus. And I think that's what fuels his courage here. So first thing, he sees how glorious Jesus is. You can see that there as he kind of looks up into heaven and you can see Jesus there at the right-hand side of God. Stephen's got a clear vision of who Jesus is. He's, He's the risen and ascended and gloriously powerful Lord of the universe and saviour of people. And so he's the one who calls people to look and see. Being filled with the Spirit will enable you to see the reality, the spiritual realities of the universe. Being filled with the Spirit will enable you to see the realities of heaven and hell and be able to see how truly glorious Jesus is and see how valuable he is. And as you see that, as you see how glorious Jesus is, that will enable you to live for him. That will enable you to stand for him. That may even enable you to die for him. Now, it may not be that you have to die for Jesus, but it is the case that we're called to pay a cost 
for living for Jesus and what will enable you to pay a price and a cost to live for Jesus is if you can see clearly how glorious he is and how valuable he is. Um, you see clearly how Jesus, how glorious Jesus is. And the second thing, and here's the final thing. Stephen could see clearly how serious it is to reject Jesus, how serious a mistake it is to reject Jesus, which is to blaspheme God and repeat the mistake of the ancestors that have come before us. Stephen can see that actually it's so tragic and so horrific to reject Jesus that it's way more tragic than what he was suffering as he was being stoned. And you can see that because in his very dying breath, in the moment of his dying breath, he's able to consider those who are executing him and be concerned for them. Because if they go on rejecting God in this way, rejecting Jesus, it's going to be far more horrific for them than for him being stoned. And he can see that so clearly that even in the moment of his execution, he's able to pray for them and ask that the Lord would actually not hold their sin against them. You see, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and to be found on the wrong side of God, having rejected Jesus in your life. That's the last thing you want to do. And if, you, if you're catching a sense, even just today, that it may be the case you're blaspheming God by rejecting Jesus, even if you're just politely ignoring him with your life and you're just trying to get on with things, just know this, it's a very, very serious thing to reject Jesus. Don't do that. Repent and turn. And for those of you who have repented and turned, spend your life reminding yourself how serious it is for people to reject Jesus and give yourself to whatever you can to help people turn and repent and put their trust in Jesus as the glorious Lord and Saviour of the universe. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this example of our brother Stephen being willing to go to his death. We thank you for how we can be encouraged. And Lord, would you give us courage to stand? Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you enable us to see clearly Jesus' glory and see clearly how tragic it is to reject him? And Lord, would you, would you help us live for you in a way that honours you and serves you with our days? Please do this for your namesake. Amen.